The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is a record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of his word, let's make uh, uh, sure we're ready. We'll open in prayer. We should already... Of confess sin with communion, so we'll just open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time to look at your word. Your word is absolute truth. Your word is the source of our true freedom in the soul. And your word is the means by which we grow and advance spiritually under the filling of the Holy Spirit, who teaches us, who stores this doctrine in our soul so that it can be recalled in time of need. Father, it is under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that we are enabled to grow and advance to spiritual maturity, and that we might, must remember that we are put on this earth for one purpose, and that is to be ambassadors for Christ in order to be witnesses in the angelic conflict, and that is achieved through advancing to spiritual maturity. So, Father, we pray as we study these things today that they would be a source of spiritual growth for us, a challenge, and that as we Learn what your word says. We would be willing to accept its challenge in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First, or first John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 1. In the last few weeks, we wrapped up what was going on in the first chapter. But if you recall... There were no chapter divisions in the original text. And if uh, the person in the 8th or ninth century who inserted the chapter divisions had uh, done so correctly, the chapter division would have come between verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 2 and not where it does because it breaks in on the flow of thought of the author. For John, it's John's procedure in this epistle to go through a discourse and then conclude that by saying, this is the reason I'm writing this to you. So he says that at the end of the section, not at the beginning of the section. And he said that in verse 4, these things, meaning verses 1 through 3, we write to you so that our joy may be made complete or brought to completion. And verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. That these things refers to 
1, 5 down through 2, 2. And then he's going to shift his subject again in verse 3. Now, what's interesting is that John has two introductory sections where he talks about, I'm writing these things to you for this reason. And then in the conclusion, he has a couple of concluding sections where he says, I'm writing these things to you for this purpose. And then the central part of his uh, message begins in chapter 2, verse 18, and extends down through the end of chapter 4. So it's an interesting arrangement, and it reflects the fact that this was probably taken from a Bible class that John taught. This was, this was based on a message. It has more similarities with uh, a, a, a spoken message than a written letter like one of Paul's epistles or <clears throat> one of Peter's epistles. So it has marks of being initially given as one class and one instruction. So the purpose of this whole epistle is to instruct the recipients into how they can enjoy and maintain fellowship with God. That's the overriding purpose. Everything in this epistle must be understood in that concept. What was happening among these churches was that they were being impacted and affected by certain false doctrines that were coming in from the surrounding pagan culture. Now, I want to remind you again of the important connections between what we are studying. In Judges in the first hour, we are looking at the dynamics of, of a culture that moves from being impacted from spiritual truth to paganism, how a culture becomes paganized, how a nation becomes paganized, how people become uh, dominated by cosmic thinking, what the, what the symptoms are, how you can evaluate it, and how we can avoid being taken in by that kind of, by, by false teaching. John, on the other hand, is talking to a group of believers to warn them against the influences of pagan thought and to teach them how to maintain truth and maintain their walk of fellowship without losing it because they absorb false doctrine, because they take in false doctrine. So fellowship for John is not merely a matter of, uh, of relationship. It's not merely the idea of... Um, of, of, of relationship, it's the or of, 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 losing fellowship being the idea of, of committing sin, but it, breaking fellowship begins with learning and applying false doctrine. It starts with doctrine, not with uh, an application or an act or an overt act or a mental attitude act of sin. Fellowship is grounded upon sound doctrine. And by that I want you to make sure you understand that he's talking about basic doctrine, not every little fine-tuned point of doctrine in the Scriptures, but the basic doctrines such as the uh, true humanity and undiminished deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on our behalf, uh, doctrines such as the Trinity, uh, doctrines such as the, the spiritual life, the person of the Holy Spirit, things of that nature that are foundational doctrines to Christianity, that if you don't understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, you cannot have a correct understanding of the gospel to begin with, and secondly, you cannot have a correct understanding of the spiritual life, because Jesus Christ, at his first coming, pioneered the spiritual life of the church age. And if he did not come as true humanity, where he was genuinely tempted in all points as we are, as the writer of Hebrews says as he learned all things by, uh, learned obedience by the things he suffered, 
as the writer of Hebrews says, then if Jesus was not true humanity, then he is not dealing with the issues of life in the same way that are facing them the same way we are and having to rely exclusively upon the Holy Spirit, which was the unique spiritual life that he was pioneering. And that's the point that John is making here because the epistle to John is not written to unbelievers to help them understand how to be saved or if they are saved, but it is written to believers to teach them what the, what the uh, marks of fellowship are with God and how to enjoy and maintain that relationship. For John, the terminology isn't the term we tend to use, which is in fellowship, which applies almost a passive idea that you're just in fellowship, just in a, in a position. We're in Christ. But John uses the word having fellowship, that we are to have fellowship with him. In verse John 1.6, he says, if we say that we have or possess fellowship, it's a much more active concept, something we are enjoying and participating in. And the concept of fellowship has to do with a, a partnership. And sometimes it emphasizes the, the receiving end of that partnership, and sometimes it emphasizes the giving side of that partnership. And if it's on the giving side of the partnership, that's how Paul uses the word when he talks about the various congregations who, who gave freely and liberally of their financial resources to help other congregations who are going through times of trouble. And in that sense, it was a sharing, it was a participation, it was a giving. And that emphasizes the, the active side of the partnership. But the passive side of the partnership is our fellowship with God where we're enjoying the benefits of that relationship with God, which is primarily activated through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we uh, are matured and brought to, and, and He activates spiritual growth in us. So fellowship is more than just a being in a position. It is an active process. It is what Paul calls in Galatians 5.16, walking by means of the Holy Spirit. There's, there, there's something active about it. There's something that, is, that has forward momentum in it. And as we walk, we frequently stumble and we commit sin. And so we have the solution to that given in 1 John 1, 9, that if we sin, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the Greek word that's translated unrighteous there is the Greek word adikia. It's the Greek word adikia, and adikia is the uh, basic root decay, which is, um, decay means righteousness. The alpha prefix, ah, is like in the English un, unrighteousness. So uh, it's translated unrighteousness. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, if we look in the context of 1 John, we discover what John means. He defines the term for us. Over in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17, he says, All unrighteousness is sin. And the Greek there for unrighteousness is the same word we have at the end of 1 John 1, 9, adikia, which means sin. All unrighteousness is sin. And then he goes on to say, And there is a sin not leading to death, which implies there is a sin 
that leads to death, which is the sin unto death. But the point that I'm making is that the word unrighteousness, adikia, is defined by John himself in the context of the epistle as meaning sin. So when we have the statement of 1 John 1, 9, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, plural, that relates to those we confess. If we confess our sins, sins plural, if you have your pen out, you can draw a circle around the first plural sins and link it to the second plural sins, and that we are forgiven of those we confess. And then he goes a step further, grace always goes an extra mile, and to cleanse us, that is to completely erase and purify, erase the sin from us and purify our lives and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there he uses the word unrighteousness. It's a synonym for sin. And this is the same principle found in Isaiah 44, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is one of the most important principles for believers to understand, is that when we confess our sins, as far as God's God's concerned, it's over and done with. Now, we may still have discipline to go through because of the sin, But now we're back in fellowship, and we're going to have the divine resources of all of the stress busters, the the ten spiritual skills, the problem-solving devices to handle whatever the discipline is, whatever that suffering is. Suffering for cursing, suffering for discipline, is is then transferred to suffering for blessing when we handle it on the basis of the principles of God's Word. So the solution is confession of sin. Now, That's what is happening in the human realm. That's what we do. We sin. At any point that we sin, we need to keep short accounts with God, and we need to admit our sins. And when we do, we're instantly restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of God, the Holy Spirit. God erases the sin. We're cleansed. We're purified. We're ready to move forward, and it's no longer an issue. So we don't need to feel guilty about it. We, We might. We might feel remorse. But when we start operating on guilt then we're just saying God really, in effect, we're saying God really didn't forgive me. Oh, it's such a terrible sin. It's continuing to to affect my relationship with God. And we basically shoot ourselves in the foot spiritually. We have to understand the dynamics of forgiveness and the complete erasure of that sin and the forgetting of it on God's part before we can move, move forward on the realization that it's over and done with. And that we understand from what John tells us in the first two verses of chapter 2. Because there we see the heavenly dynamics of forgiveness. The heavenly dynamics of forgiveness in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you might not sin. That these things refers to what he has said, starting in verse 5, down through this section. So he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, in those two verses... John hits on at least four crucial doctrines. So we might not finish those verses this morning. We have the doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ and his present 
uh, position and session in heaven. We have the doctrine related to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have the doctrine of propitiation in verse 2, and then the doctrine of unlimited atonement in verse 2. Any one of which we could spend weeks on, but we won't. We will just begin to take it apart, one doctrine at a time. So to begin with, we need to make sure we have an accurate understanding of these verses in terms of exegesis, because if you don't have a correct translation, then you can't correctly interpret. That's one of the, one of the um, most important things that we have to understand is interpretation, I mean, application follows interpretation. Interpretation asks the question, what does this mean? Specifically, what did the author intend to communicate to its recipients? See, the Bible is static. The message of the Bible is static. It never changes. It's not a, it's not a living document in the same way that the United States Constitution is not a living document. Now, if you don't understand that, then you don't understand historical documents. A historical document is deter- any historical document is determined by the intent, the meaning of it is in- determined by the intent of the author. For example, if you have instructions on how to fill out your uh, income tax return for this year, that's a static document. It's meaning will never change. Once it has been codified and put down in black and white and instructions, it doesn't change. You can't come along and say, well, I think that they meant to say this. Well, you can do that, but you'll probably be meeting with your auditor in a little private session that will probably be painful. Um, We can't assign our subjective impressions to the meaning of a historical document. They're not fluid. They're not living. They, they had a specific intent at the time in which they were written, and we must understand what John was saying to his recipients in approximately 92 or 93 A.D., and once we understand that, then we draw application from that. So you have to have a correct interpretation before you can ever have any kind of correct application, and in order to have a correct interpretation, you better understand, since, it's a doc, since we're dealing with an English text that's been translated from a Greek original, we need to first make sure we have an accurate translation. This is why I spend time going through and exegeting from the Greek and explaining it, is so we can make sure we have a a good understanding of the original text. Now, I don't go through and, and, and deal with every single word because today we have modern translations such as the New American Standard. Uh, New King James Version, one, probably one or two others. I'm purposely leaving out the New International Version because I don't like the linguistic philosophy that undergirds their uh, translation philosophy. But you, we have these translations, and for the most part, they're very good. And now and then we, we can add, we can embellish, we can expand, we can get, develop insight from the syntax of the original Greek But for the most part, these translations are pretty accurate, unlike the old King James Version, which was loaded with 16th century Elizabethan English that is not understood at all by a 21st century American reader. So we don't have to spend as much time correcting 
uh, translations now as we used to back when all we had was the antiquated King James. Well, John begins with the phrase, my little children. My little children is the Greek mu or tek, tek nia mu. It's the noun uh, technon plus the first person pronoun from ego, meaning, meaning here, my. This word is a, it's a diminutive. Am I not on the overhead? This is a, uh, by adding the, um, just a minute. By adding the um, the ending on this, the technia, it makes it a uh, it's a neuter plural vocative, and it means it's a term used for a little child, a term of endearment that a a parent would use for their young child or for a, a child in the nursery, and it's a, a term of close endearment. So that tells us that John is addressing them. As believers. As believers. Now, that's important because in understanding John, you'll run into people every now and then who are going to try to make an argument that John is telling us, is contrasting the life of the believer, the genuine believer, versus the life of the unbeliever. And that's false for a number of reasons, but this indicates that he's writing to them as believers. So the issue isn't believer versus unbeliever. It's the believer in fellowship versus the believer who's not in fellowship. And that's crucial to an overall understanding of this verse, uh, of the book. If you think that he's writing to give us tests to evaluate whether or not we're saved, then you will literally end up making salvation somehow based on Works that if you don't have certain characteristics in your life, then you're not really a believer. That's how many people want to interpret First John. But when you run across a phrase like this, it is clear that John is addressing them as believers. He is assuming they are believers, so he is not trying to tell them how to know the difference between whether or not they're saved, but he's t teaching them about how to maintain fellowship. So he addresses them with this uh, term of endearment, this term of intimacy, to emphasize the fact that they are indeed believers. This is not John's normal term. Elsewhere he uses the, the Greek word padia, which emphasizes the fact that they are children. But here he is using a close term of endearment, technia. Now he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you. And the you is the dative of the second person plural, and it's a dative of advantage. I am writing these things for your advantage in order to help you with the spiritual life. I am writing these things, and these things, in, in the way John uses this, always seems to refer to that which has gone before. So he set up these, these hypothetical cases in verses 6 through 10, to show that there are different ways that people try to handle sin in their life. 
There are those who claim back in verse 6 to have fellowship, but they live in carnality. They live in sin. They live a life that's dominated by human viewpoint. And John says, if you make the claim that you have a relationship with God, um, a temporal relationship with God, that you're in fellowship, and you live a certain way, then you're just lying and you're not applying doctrine. In contrast, there, if we walk in the light, that is consistent with his right, righteousness and justice, with the standard of his character, then we do enjoy fellowship with one another. Verse 8 talks about those who deny the fact that they are sin or that perhaps at salvation they lost the capacity to sin and they claim that they have no sin, no single sin in their life. And he says, well, that's self-deception and there's no doctrine in you. You don't understand truth and you're completely deceived. In contrast, there's the believer who does confess his sins for forgiveness. And then there's the third classification in verse 10, those who say that they have not ever sinned and that he says, makes God out to be a liar. So he set up these different hypothetical cases in verses 6 through 10 in order to emphasize what the believer who stays in fellowship does. He confesses his sin. And that's based on the continual cleansing of Jesus' spiritual substitutionary death back in verse 7. So he says, I'm writing to you to these things so you may not sin. Now, that often raises a question in the minds of a lot of people because they think that what John is saying, just by looking at that in the, in the English, that what John is saying is that as a believer, you need to learn these things so you won't ever sin again. Because that's what it sounds like. But that's not what it says in the Greek. In the Greek, what you have is a phrase... Uh, a hina clause, and hina means a, uh, is a, expresses a purpose, and it's used with an aorist active subjunctive of the Greek verb hamartano. Now, we ha- always have to pay attention to the syntax of verbs because the verb is the main action element in the sentence. The Greek word is hamartano, Rough breathing mark, H-A-M-A-R-T-A-N-O, which means to sin, to miss the mark, literally, which is the idea of falling short of, uh, of the glory of God. And it is an aorist, active, subjunctive. Now, the mood is the subjunctive, and that indicates possibility, or potentiality. But it's also used in Greek when it is used with a, with a hina. It is used to express purpose or result. And when it's combined with the negative here, it's so that you avoid this possibility or this potentiality of sinning. The aorist tense is usually expressed or often expressed as summing up a series of events in terms of a point of action, but it's not really just one event. It just summarizes it. And so in this sense, this is called a cumulative uh, or a constitutive aorist, which just summarizes all these events, whether it's one sin or many sins, up into, into one ball. And he's basically saying, I'm writing these things so you don't commit sins. 
Not so that you don't continuously sin, but that you don't commit sins. Part of the Christian life is that we should be doing battle with the sin nature and not sinning. We don't just say, okay, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I've got a sin nature. I'm not going to avoid it, so I'm not going to try to uh, resist the sin nature whatsoever. That, that's licentiousness. See, we're in a battle. That's what he, uh, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 is all about. We either walk by the uh, Holy Spirit or we live according to the flesh. And the Spirit wars against the flesh. It is the battle in the soul between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit. We are given a new nature when we are saved, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. His goal is to make us like Jesus Christ. That's His goal. Now, if your goal is to live life as you want to, then guess what? You've got a major struggle going on in your life, and you're fighting against the Holy Spirit. And He's continuously going to be working in your life to bring you to a knowledge of sin so that you can confess it. And He's also going to be working in terms of divine discipline. But that doesn't produce sanctification. Sanctification growth only takes place after we confess sins, when we're in fellowship. And that's when the sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, takes place. So, John writing, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Why? Because when you sin, you're out of fellowship. When you sin, you lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. When you sin, you grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. When you sin, you stop the sanctifying, growth-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So that means don't sin. What if I sin? Well, look at what he says in the next verse. If anyone sins. And if. It's chi plus aeon. And this introduces a third-class conditional clause. Now, we've already seen several of these, so I don't need to remind you of the fact that the Greek expresses conditions or suppositions in various different ways, and the third-class condition indicates that it could be one way or the other way. It's what we would call a true condition. Well, if, maybe you will, and if, maybe you won't. And it's not like the first-class condition, which says, and if, and we're assuming you will, not like a second-class condition, if, and we're assuming you won't, but it's if, and maybe you will, but you, maybe you won't, but you probably will. Uh, that's one meaning of the third-class condition. So if anyone sins, they, they might not, but they probably will. And that's because John is a realist and knows that we all have a sin nature, and we will probably sin. So he's going to give us the solution. He's not just going to put everybody on a guilt trip and say, don't sin, because he knows that's impossible. And if anyone sins. So now he's going to give us the other side of the solution that was expressed in verse 9. 9 tells us what our responsibility is. And verse 2 here is going to explain what happens in the heavenly realm. He says, and if. Now the chi here, the word that is translated and, which is the uh, beginning conjunction, it should be translated in a, what's called an ascensive sense. It's not simply a connecting. See, and can just connect two things like, like um, you know, go get the ball and the bat. You're just connecting two things together. Uh, it can have an ascensive means that the second thing is, is even if. Uh, and even if, it, adds a, it steps up the action a little bit, steps up the intensity a little bit. And even if someone sins. So that introduces the possibility, the potentiality of, potentiality of sin. And he uses 
the indefinite pronoun of tis in the Greek, which means anyone, and it includes all believers. This emphasizes John's, John's um, realism here. He knows we're going to sin. If any believer sins, no matter who you are, whether you're an immature believer or a mature believer, if anyone sins, here's the solution. We have. And there we have the uh, first person plural pronoun from ego, translated we, plus the verb echo, meaning possession. We have, we possess an advocate. We possess an advocate with the Father. Now, this is a very important word that John uses here for advocate, and it is the Greek word parakletos. Looks like this in the Greek. Parakletos. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-O-S. Now, this word is only used one time in 1 John, and that refers to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. However, it is not a word that is strange to John, for he uses it four times in the Gospel of John. In John 14.16, in John 14.26, John 15.26, and 16.7, John uses this word to refer to the Holy Spirit. And there, when we went through John and exegeted those passages, I said that the best translation is that of an assistant. Sometimes it's translated comforter, because it has the idea from kletos, meaning called, and the preposition para means alongside. It means someone who comes alongside to help. Sometimes it's translated encouragement. Sometimes it's translated uh, mentor. Sometimes it's translated representative. Sometimes it's translated assistant. It can have different nuances, and you have to look at the context to see just exactly the best way to translate it. Here it has a legal connotation because of the, the context and the picture of what's going on here that it has the, the picture of Jesus Christ as a legal advocate defending a, uh, a defendant against certain charges brought against him. So it is a legal definition of the operation of Christ in heaven. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because so many of the terms in Scripture that relate to salvation are legal courtroom terms. We are justified. We're condemned. Why are we condemned? We're condemned because we have not believed in Jesus Christ. We, we, when we believe in Jesus Christ, at that moment, God credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and God, as the, as the judge of the Supreme Court of Heaven, looks at us, sees our possession of that perfect righteousness, and declares us to be just. It's a legal term. So what's going on in the heavenly realm is modeled on the terminology of a courtroom. It's not experience, it's law. It has to do with legal function. And the reason I emphasize that is because so many folks get the idea that confession of sin back in 1.9 has something to do with, with emotion, 
or sincerity or somehow uh, convincing God that we're not going to sin again. And the whole context here, as seen in 2.1, is a courtroom. And in a courtroom, it really doesn't matter how you feel when you declare your guilt or innocence. You come into a court, your charge is presented against you that you uh, allegedly committed some crime, and the judge says, are you innocent or guilty? And if you're going to declare your guilt, you have to admit what you did. Now, at that point, in terms of whether you are determined to be guilty or innocent, at that point, how you feel about the crime is not the issue. It doesn't matter whether you're glad you did it, whether you would do it again, given given half the opportunity. None of that enters in. Now, that might enter in in the sentencing, but we're not talking about the sentencing stage here. We're talking about just that initial stage of admission or denial of guilt. And that's what a confession is. It is simply an admission or acknowledgement of having performed certain activities. How you feel isn't the issue. It doesn't impress God. And God doesn't forgive us on the basis of how we feel or on the basis of our asking for forgiveness. Because it doesn't say if we forgive, if we ask God to forgive us our sins, He'll forgive us. It says if we admit our sins, He'll forgive us. And there's a big difference. You always hear somebody stand up and say, well, Father, forgive us for our sins. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says to admit your sins. And so what happens in our realm is that we admit our sins, and what happens in the heavenly realm is it comes before the bench of the Supreme Court of Heaven. It is a portrayal of the fact that we have been accused by Satan. Well, look at them. They claim to be a part of the royal family of God and that they're saved. And uh, look at what's happening here. You're just, uh, uh, how in the world can you save them and they be part of the family? And Jesus Christ is going to come as our defense attorney, as our advocate before the Supreme Court of Heaven to defend us. And that is based on who Jesus Christ is. Notice it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, Hadakaios, emphasizing the fact that of his qualifications, that he is sinless, he is impeccable, and therefore qualified to stand before God as our representative. And when John says here, Jesus Christ the righteous, it should immediately bring to our minds what he just said two verses earlier, where it says if, that if we confess or admit our sins, God is faithful and what? Righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a connection there between Jesus Christ called the righteous because John wants us to think in terms of who God is and His characteristics. Remember, the righteousness of God is His standard, His norms and standards for right and wrong. And so the righteousness of God expresses the standard of God. The justice of God is the application of that standard to man. So that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Now, when we come before God at confession, we are saying that we performed a certain act that comes under condemnation, but that that was paid for at the cross. Because at the cross, when all of our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross, God the Father 
in his righteousness could not approve of Jesus Christ at that point because, and that's why there was separation, three hours of darkness on the cross. And the justice of God poured out the penalty for sin on Jesus Christ during those three hours where his suffering went beyond anything that we could ever possibly imagine so that he bore our sins. He carried in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 3.15 says, our sins, every one of them, past, present, and future, every sin of the human race, no matter how heinous, no matter how horrible, no matter how reprehensible, was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, and yet he remained sinless. He did not commit those sins. He just bore the penalty. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, but he is not personally guilty. He was, it was simply imputed to him. It was, a, uh, it was a, a real or a judicial imputation, not a real imputation. A real imputation, as we've studied imputation before, real imputation is when that which is imputed has affinity with that to which it is imputed. For example, Adam's original sin is imputed to our sin nature. There is an affinity between Adam's original sin and our sin nature. They, they go together. They're compatible. And so that's a, real, that's a real imputation. But a judicial imputation is when there is not compatibility between that which is imputed and that to which it is imputed. And there's no compatibility between our sin and perfect Jesus Christ. So it is a judicial, not a real imputation, so that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, yet he remained personally impeccable. Now, the word impeccable derives from the Latin word peccari. And in, in uh, the early development of theology, as they were debating and trying to understand the nature of the humanity of Jesus Christ, they used it, they, and, and peccari is a basic word, Latin word for sin, they used the phrase, or they used two phrases. Not, the first is non posse. Picari, which means not able to sin, and posse non picari, which means able not to sin. And the big debate was whether or not Jesus Christ was um, not able to sin or whether he was able not to sin. Now, the solution is that in his humanity, Jesus Christ was able not to sin. He was born sinless. He did not inherit a sin nature from his father uh, because his father was not a sinner. His, because of the virgin birth, his father was the, the Holy Spirit who made it possible for the Virgin Mary to conceive and uh, give birth. Jo that's why Joseph was cut out of the loop, is because the sin nature is passed down through the male. So he did not inherit a sin nature, so there was no natural or compatible home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. So he doesn't have a sin nature, and he doesn't receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. And because of that... And because of the connection with deity, 
he was able not to sin. He went his entire life with no sin. That's referred to no sin. That's referred to as the impeccability of Christ. Now, in his deity, he is not able to sin because of immutability. God cannot change. Deity cannot change. It's impossible for deity to change. So, in his deity, he was not able to sin. And so, Jesus Christ, in his in hypostatic union, is both not able to sin and able not to sin. And so he lived his entire life sinless. And that means that he is born as the God-man in hypostatic union. He is born plus our perfect righteousness. Now there is a view that Jesus Christ, what's, what the technical theological term is passive obedience, that Jesus Christ earned his qualifications to go to the cross by not sinning. That his Obedience to his life from birth to the cross is also part of his payment for sin. Now, that is what is taught in covenant theology. And the reason they do that is because they think that Adam was created neutral and Adam had to earn righteousness by not eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, in the same sense, Jesus is created and born, I mean, Jesus is born in that same state of neutrality and by his obedience, he earns qualification. Now, that's dangerous teaching because it it violates Scripture and it ends up making making it a a, a factor of works on the part of of Christ and salvation, which is how works enters the back door of lordship salvation. So, we have the fact that Jesus is born not able to sin. He is born with perfect righteousness. He doesn't earn it. He is born qualified and he stays qualified so that he can go to the cross to die as our substitute. That's the emphasis of Jesus Christ the righteous. So he is now qualified to stand in our place as our advocate in heaven. So let's look at the doctrine of advocacy. The doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. Point number one, every believer continues to sin after salvation, 1 John 1, 8 and 10. Point number one, the believer continues to sin after salvation, 1 John 1, 8 and 10. Point number two, Satan, Satan accumulates a sin file on every believer and periodically accuses believers in heaven. He uses his demons as as sort of his secret agents, his intelligence agents, going out to collect information on on believers, and he presents a case before God. This is seen in Job uh, 1 through 10. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and that's that's a term here that defines all the angels, fallen and unfallen, holy and elect. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. That's 2 Peter 5, that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 8, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, Satan's going to make the case that, no, 
Job respects you and follows you simply because you've blessed him so much. Verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So here we see the dynamics of what happens in heaven as Satan accuses the believer. We see another example of this in Zechariah 3, 1 through. We see a picture of, uh, of the whole act of imputation and uh, the advocacy of Christ. Then he, that is the angel that's showing this vision to Zechariah, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, that is at the right hand of Joshua, to accuse him. The Lord then says to Satan, so we have three personages here. We have the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ acting as, as a defense attorney, and Satan acting as a prosecutor. The Lord, God the Father, says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And there he's referring to the second person of the Trinity. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That's a picture of believers in sin. And standing before the angel. That's the angel of the Lord. He, they spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. That's what happens at confession when we're cleansed from sin. Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And that is a picture of the cleansing of the believer when he confesses sin. So we have this example, even from the Old Testament, this tremendous example of how Jesus Christ operates as our defense attorney in heaven. Another passage that deals with Satan as our accuser is in Revelation 12, 9, and 10. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. See, he is called, uh, he's, he's the serpent of old is identified I mean, the dragon is identified with the devil and Satan. Then, then verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. So we see the fact that continuously we are accused by Satan before God, but it is Jesus Christ the righteous who is our advocate who stands there defending us. This is why we have eternal security. If we didn't have eternal security, then Jesus would be saying, oh, yep, they sinned, didn't cover that one on the cross, they just lost their salvation. So, but that's not what happens. He continuously stands as our defense attorney. Point number three, Jesus Christ then is retained as the believer's defense attorney in the court of heaven, and He defends every case. Now, on occasion, in extreme cases... There are notes of believers in the New Testament who are turned over to Satan for the administration of the sin unto death. But they don't lose their salvation. They have removed themselves from the operation of grace and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And through extended carnality, they're outside the plan of God. So God turns them over to Satan for, dis- to, to, for discipline, but they don't lose their salvation. Point number four. The basis for our Lord's defense is the fact that all of our sins were judged at the cross in Him by God the Father. 
All of our sins were judged on the cross by God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.24, Psalm 22, 1-6, and 1 Peter 3.18. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.24, Psalm 22, 1-6, and 1 Peter 3.18. No sin was left uncovered. God the Father in His omniscience knew every single sin. He knew every sin that everybody would commit past, present, and future. We never do anything that God didn't know about in eternity past. And so God was completely capable of putting every single sin on Jesus Christ and imputing every sin to Him on the cross. Point number five, under the law of double jeopardy, those sins can't be judged again. Just like if you go out and commit a crime, and if you're taken to court, and you are found not guilty, you cannot be charged with that same crime again and taken to court. That is a protection. That's part of our rights. And the same is true in heaven that our sins were judged on the cross, so they can't, they've already been judged, so they won't be judged again. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, the believer is always defended in heaven from Satan and his attacks. Therefore, verse 6, I mean, point 6, every case is thrown out of court by God the Father. Every case is thrown out of court by God the Father, according to the passage we just read, Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. Nevertheless, the believer doesn't get off scot-free from his sins. There's still divine discipline. But the sins of the believer are not a court matter anymore, but a family matter for the imputation of divine discipline, as in Hebrews 12.6, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. So don't think that somehow 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 2, 1 and 2 somehow mean that you can sin and get away with it. There's still divine discipline, and divine discipline, as David is a witness to, can be a miserable affair that goes on for the rest of our lives and can be absolutely devastating. So don't think that just because of grace means that somehow I'm going to get away with it, that God treats it lightly, or God's just going to overlook it. God is going to discipline us. He may let us get away with it for some time, but then eventually God is going to deal with every issue in our lives, every sin in our lives, and He may lower the boom eventually, and then we're going to be in serious trouble. Because once we've established a habit pattern of licentiousness, then it becomes extremely difficult for us to break those habit patterns. We'll come back next time and look at verse 2, which establishes the foundation for this in the doctrine of propitiation and unlimited atonement. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You that Your grace is all-sufficient, that in Your grace You provided a salvation that deals with every sin that we could possibly commit. That it is a salvation that is not based on anything that we do. It is not based on our own merits. It is not based on our own uh, righteousness. It is based exclusively upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His righteousness. We are not saved because of who and what we are, but because of who and what You are. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make it sure and certain by putting their faith and trust in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
It's not a matter of even telling God that you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins because God knows what you are trusting for salvation and He knows if you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins or not. Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things that we've learned, that we would be encouraged by the tremendous grace that You give us in being able to deal with our sins simply through uh, confession and admission of guilt. And we thank You that we are continuously cleansed and forgiven from all unrighteousness because of what Christ did on the cross. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.